Well, in chapters 1 to 3, about nine years have passed. And as we entered chapter 4 last week, things began to speed up quite a bit. From chapters 4 to chapter 8, these events will take place in about two days. So things really slow down. Last week we ended with Queen Esther requesting from Mordecai to pray and fast for three days with all the Jews of Susa. Today picks up on that third and final day of fasting. Chapters 5 to 6 are the kind of turning point in the book. We see that things begin to reverse somewhat, and we'll see that more particularly next, uh, or in two weeks' time when Rob does chapter 7. But we'll see today that in the wisdom of God, what was meant for evil will now be turned to good. And a big thanks to Rob for unpacking the past four chapters. I think they are difficult exegetically to, uh, to unpack. And I think he's given me some of the easier chapters of the book of Esther. So thanks, Rob. He denies it, but thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. <laughs> because it's here in these chapters where we see, I think, most clearly the invisible hand of God moving. The hidden hand of God ordering events to save his people. I've got three headings for us if you're following along your bulletin. We're going to see Esther, the patient mediator. Haman, the pernicious enemy. And Mordecai's planned execution to proclaimed exaltation. Let's begin with the first one. Have a look at verses 1 to 2 of chapter 5. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. And now just a reminder from last week, this is a courageous act on the part of Esther. To approach the king without being summoned was extremely dangerous. Remind yourself of last week, verse 16 of chapter 4. She will resolutely go to the king, even if it's against the law. And if she perishes, well then, she will perish. I want us to note that there is a godly rebellion behind her actions. What do I mean by godly rebellion? That is to say, as Acts chapter 5 verse 29 lays out, that God's people have an obligation to obey God rather than men. But I also want us to see that godly rebellion is not chaotic. It is done through resolute humility. It is to break a law knowing that there will be consequences and accepting those consequences. And to wait upon God to vindicate you in the process. This is what Esther does. And I want you to notice that if the four main characters of the book of Esther are the king, Mordecai, Haman, and Esther. If those are the four main characters, well then Esther, although queen at this point, is the least powerful person in the story. But she serves the hidden king. The one who is behind the scenes, moving and ordering and sustaining. She serves God. Now the sovereign God has ordained and appointed every power on earth. Every leader, every king, every queen, every prime minister, 
every president, every dictator, every elder, every pastor, every husband over his family, God has ordained and appointed their positions. There is not a single person in this world who has received power and position without the will of God. King Xerxes is king because God made him so. And whilst God is her true king, she is sworn to an earthly king, to Xerxes. As his queen, she is committed to him. Xerxes is not a king to be opposed or deposed. Esther isn't a ruler on equal footing. She isn't a foreign power. Here, she is a servant to the king. That is her place. And so she will risk breaking convention, breaking law. She will risk her life, but she will do it with resolute humility. She puts on her royal robes. Literally, that is to put on royalty. She puts on royalty. She is not there to seduce the king, but to humbly request his ear. She enters the palace. She stands in sight of the king, waiting for his approval or his disapproval. But the hand of God is moving. You see that? Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that God's grace is sufficient. That his power is made perfect in weakness. Don't we see that in Esther? The least powerful person in the story. And the sovereign Lord of lords, the King of kings, he will protect her. He will make her victorious. Have a look at verse 2 to 3 with me. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. Xerxes has received her into his presence warmly, with affection. And although thus far Xerxes has been painted as a, as a kind of drunken oaf, we do see here a softer side. And he's aware that she has an important request on her heart. Because she would not have approached him otherwise. She would not have risked her life otherwise. That is why he asks her what it is she wants. And he gives her great comfort. Even up to half the kingdom, he says, you, you can ask anything. Now Esther drags us all along for a little bit of a ride, doesn't she? There's some tension here. She's gained an audience with the king. And you think she would get right to the point. Her people are in grave danger. But she doesn't. She is patient. She shows great restraint where you and I might have shown a little bit more haste. Verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. I think this is a great power move on Esther's part. The king, of course, agrees to such a request. And the two most powerful men in the kingdom are at her request. 
both Xerxes and Haman are coming to her banquet. Now Xerxes knows this is not her ultimate wish. She wouldn't have risked her life for a banquet. And so in verse 6, we see both Haman and Xerxes enjoying her hospitality. But Xerxes presses her. What does she want? What is her request? And I want you to note this is the second time Xerxes offers her, offers to grant her petition. And we're not told why, but Esther again delays her request in verses 7 to 8. Instead, she humbly asks the king and Haman to attend yet another banquet, provided the king continues to look on her with favor. At this banquet, she says that she will answer the king's question. Now, I want us to remind us quickly of chapter 1, whereas in chapter 1, Queen Vashti was invited to the banquet. Here, Esther invites the king to a banquet. It's a subtle hint at who has the leverage. Esther, not the queen, king, is in the commander's seat. And I want to suggest to us that Esther here is ruling the heart of this king. She's ruling his heart. It kind of reminds me of that old saying, he might be the head, but she is the neck that moves him. (laughs) Now, just to be clear, that is not a biblical definition of headship, right? Ladies, that's not a life skill from Esther on how to get your husband to do what you want him to do. That's called manipulation. (laughs) But we have to ask ourselves who Esther is as we read this Bible, as we read this passage, this side of the cross. Esther is a type of Christ. This book paints Esther as a mediator on behalf of her people. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 1, A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed. To be stiff-necked is to be stubborn in your sin. The Israelites were denounced again and again as being stiff-necked by Jeremiah because they refused to turn toward God in obedience. Now you can accuse Xerxes of many, many things and you would be right in those accusations. But what he is not is stiff-necked. He is moved by a greater wisdom than himself, by a mediator. Whether he understands it or not, but he obliges Esther and he is obedient to the will of God. Yes, even evil kings can be obedient to God's will. Proverbs 21 verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a stream wherever he pleases. King Xerxes and Haman are at Esther's request. And they will attend another banquet. And at that banquet, we'll see in chapter 7, it will be the third time that the king offers Esther up to half his kingdom. A generous comfort to her to ask anything. And you, you need to know that it's no small thing for the king to ask three times, what is it you want? Right? That's no small thing. In cultures of honor and shame, He is bound to his promise of generosity. That's why she's being patient. Like a Proverbs 31 woman, she has gathered great wealth. But here, that wealth is in the form of the king's favor. That's what she's gathering. That's what her patience is doing. She's gathering the king's favor. 
She has gained his favor. She's patiently warming his heart with her resolute humility. And she will come to use that favor to mediate on behalf of her people. They don't have access to the king. They can't plead their case. They're destined to be killed by the king. Friends, that is why Esther is a picture of Christ. Esther the Jew who had royal access. Jesus the God-man who humbled himself, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped. The Son of God who had access to the throne room of God. Esther would risk the king's wrath. Jesus would take God's wrath fully on himself. In Esther's faithful obedience, she would save her people and from that remnant, Jesus would come in perfect obedience to his Father to save his people fully and forever. Esther, friends, points us to Jesus. He is our perfect and final mediator and our Savior. So, Esther invites the king and Haman to another banquet. But before we get to that banquet in chapter 7 in a couple of weeks' time, let's move to see Haman's response to all of this. Now, Haman thinks that this is all rather wonderful. Follow along with me. Verse 9 begins, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Verse 11, speaking to his friends and his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. Verse 12, and that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Haman literally had everything. He had great wealth. He had a large family, which would be a great blessing to a man. He had been elevated to the highest position in the land. But there was one thing, friends, he did not have. He did not have Mordecai's honor or respect or praise. See the second half of verse 9. When he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence... He was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Now notice here that Haman is also a patient leader. You see that? He too is patient. But what brings about Haman's patience? See, Esther's patience, I would argue, is built upon the foundation of God's word and promises. God will save his people. She trusts in the promises of God. Haman's patience is found in his trust of the king's edict. His well-crafted, widespread, common genocide of the Jewish people. Mordecai will come to die at the hands of Haman. And he will never have to let his animosity against Mordecai become public knowledge. So he will restrain himself. But we see that this clearly bothers him, doesn't it? And with his family and his friends, he shares his oh-so-deep troubles. After sharing of his pride at being invited to Queen Esther's private banquet, he confesses, verse 13, But all this gives me no satisfaction, as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. 
Now, Haman's wife, Zeresh, and his friends, they're not patient. They provide swift counsel to Haman. Much like King Xerxes' advisors provided him swift counsel with regards to Vashti. And we see here that there is no true wisdom. There is just the bruised ego of a man who has everything being stroked. What is the advice given to him? To kill Mordecai immediately. To have gallows built for Mordecai to be hanged or impaled in the Bibles that you've got in pews as a public spectacle. This would be a large structure that would be higher than the walls. This would be something that everyone would see. A public execution. Mordecai, the first of the Jews to be killed. Haman surely is a pernicious enemy. But friends, he is an enemy that's already defeated. Have you ever seen a chess master playing? I'm not terrible at chess. I know my way around the board, pieces. I know some strategy. But if I had to play a world championship uh, chess master, I think I would be totally destroyed. That's not being, being, being humble. I think that's just the reality. Like, embarrassingly so. And if a chess master wanted, he could beat me in two or three moves. Similarly, if he wanted, he could string me along. He could make it look like I knew what I was doing. That I'm playing well and with good decisions. But all the while, he is setting me up for a final and decisive victory. Friends, Haman thinks he's in charge. But every decision he makes will lead to a spectacular reversal. Last week, we discovered that he set, with the help of a die, the genocide to the month of Adar. And as we discovered last week, that would be this time of year, the time of the Passover. And the date for executing the Jews will become the date that they are saved. And more so, that their enemies will be defeated. In this second decision today, instead of Mordecai being the first among the Jews killed, we're going to come to see that Haman will be the first of those who oppose the Jews to be killed. Haman may think he's in charge, but there is a greater God behind the scenes. He is moving the pieces, and this pernicious enemy will be defeated. Friends, as we come to look forward to Good Friday, the day Jesus will be hung on his own tree, the great enemy Satan could never have imagined that the death of the one he sought, the death of Jesus on the cross, would be the crushing victory blow over Satan himself. The chessboard has been set up. To the untrained eye, it looks like Haman might win, that the enemy might win. Esther has delayed her request to the king. Mordecai may be killed very soon. Let's move on to chapter 6 and see our final lesson. Mordecai's planned execution to proclaimed exaltation. Now, as we read through this chapter, I'm going to read some comment, read some comment. As we read through it, I want to say that I think you are allowed to laugh. I think it's written for us to laugh at this. There is a humorous irony that plays out here. 
As we finish chapter 5, we expect the imminent death of Mordecai at the hands of Haman. Let's see what happens. Verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Stop there. The book of Chronicles would be a feel-good reading for the king. It would have all of his best highlights and none of his failures, right? such as losing in the battle to the Greeks a short while ago. But it just so happens, coincidentally, right? how did that happen? That he hears about none other than Mordecai. Keep reading from verse 2. It was found recorded that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. Now isn't it curious how all these events are just lining up? From the king being unable to sleep, the attendants reading of the foil assassination plot, bringing Mordecai's name to the king's attention, to Haman appearing at the point of Mordecai's exaltation. <laughs> Mordecai's name had been written down in the king's chronicles back in chapter 2, sometime in the past nine years. And it was an oversight of the king to not have rewarded him. Perhaps having your name recorded would be reward enough, but not to the king. But notice too how the king never once makes a decision in this book. Never once does he make a decision in this book without the prior guidance and counsel of someone else. And this is where things really get fun. That someone happens to be Haman. And Haman arrives, of course, to request Mordecai's early execution, the first of the Jews to die. But little does he know that the king is about to exalt Mordecai. But notice as we keep reading how the king asks Haman for his counsel. See, Haman is so full of himself to think the king could be talking about anyone else but him. Let's read from verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to, to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has sworn, worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. O oh, Haman. He just cannot imagine that the king would seek to honor someone else. Haman is perhaps like many who think the world revolves around them, their desires, their egos. So Haman, thinking the king is speaking of him, throws in the grandest displays of honor that he thinks he can get away with. And it's so outrageous, isn't it? The request is so outrageous to wear the king's robe, to ride the king's horse, be arrayed around publicly. This kind of honor would only be suitable for someone royal, 
for someone in line to the throne, perhaps the son or the king himself. Haman is so full of himself that he seeks to get as close to equality with the king as possible. Read verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Wouldn't it be fantastic to see Haman's face at this point? The one man he hated, the one man who was able to steal his joy, the man he had planned to publicly execute for failing to praise him, has now been publicly exalted. And it's strange the king doesn't seem to mind this kind of honor that has been prescribed here. Perhaps it's flattering for the king. He's all for it. And with great immediacy, this needs to happen. Mordecai saved his life. And he'll be honored for it. Verses 11 to 13. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what the, is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Friends, this is a picture of redemption and of vindication. Now, I'm not totally convinced that Mordecai is a purely righteous actor in the book of Esther. In this chapter, definitely he is painted as the righteous man. He is the one who saved the king by thwarting the assassination plot, and his righteousness will lead to his vindication. That is true. But in previous chapters, there is a sense of moral ambiguity about him. He is sentenced to death along with all the Jews because of his sins against Haman, and therefore his sins against the king. Remind yourself, chapter 3, verse 2, the king had commanded that Haman receive honor, right? It was at the king's command. Mordecai refused. By failing to show honor to Haman, Mordecai dishonored the king's command. Mordecai, in my mind, sinned. Now, Haman's response, of course, is pure evil. His actions reflect the nature of his heart as he not only seeks Mordecai's death, but the death of all the Jews. Haman is a picture of the great enemy of Satan. He will be the first to be punished by God. That much is clear. But all of these events are direct consequences of Mordecai's actions. Now look, not one sinner on the day of judgment can stand before God and say, Satan made me do it. It was his fault. No, each of us are responsible for our sinful actions. And there are times that we are to exercise godly rebellion, as Esther did, exercising resolute humility. And there are times, as Jesus would teach later, that we are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But Mordecai refuses. And death is his punishment. And not only his, but all the Jews. 
On one hand, he sins against his king by not honoring Haman. But on the other hand, he shows great dedication and devotion to the king by saving his life. Now, up to this point, his righteous action has gone unrecognized. But what has happened now? He has been made righteous by the king. In a sense, his previous transgressions against Haman are null and void. It is not even known by the king. Mordecai is so covered by the king's righteousness, not Haman, not anyone could stand to accuse him. Could come against Mordecai without themselves coming to ruin. Friends, the enemy has already been defeated. Mordecai then is both a picture of God's imperfect people being redeemed... And he is a shadow of Jesus in his righteous vindication. He is a picture of God's people that he is redeemed, saved from death. And he is a shadow of Jesus in that we see here a righteous man vindicated. Remember Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And has poured out what you now see and hear. You see, according to Peter, Jesus is vindicated. Though he was mocked and killed as one who was a criminal, he is raised to life again and is seated at the right hand of God. That is vindication. What happens to Mordecai is what could only happen to someone of royalty. To be honored in such a way, to wear the king's robe. To ride out on the king's horse is akin to the king saying, sit at my right hand. He is the man the king delights to honor. This is what happens to Mordecai. This is what finally happens to Jesus. And friends, this is what Jesus does for every believer as we are seated in the heavenly realms with him. As our life is hid with Christ in God. As we are covered by His blood, by His righteousness. And as we wait for that final day, when Satan will be finally defeated, he has been defeated, right? He has no power over the Christian, though the effects of sin still linger. But we look forward to that day where all will be made right again. Where not only are we redeemed, but we will also be vindicated in how we live for Christ today. And as we come to an end, I'm reminded of that hymn, when Satan tempts you to despair. When he tells you of all your guilt within. Upward, look, see him, the Lord of life, Jesus, your Savior, who made an end to all your sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage in Esther. Thank you for how it so clearly displays your hidden hand working behind the scenes moving and ordering the most powerful people in the world you will have victory and thank you that there is victory already because of Christ's death and resurrection and father although we still at times feel the effects of sin although we see great evil in the world we know that you have already won we look forward to that final day where the enemy will be finally defeated, thrown out, and your people will be vindicated. Help us to trust in you, 
all the days of our life, to seek to be faithful and obedient to how you've called us to live. Give us wisdom where we need wisdom to exercise godly rebellion and help us to understand how better to respect the authorities and powers above us as they point us to your true kingdom, we pray. Amen.